Hey everyone, it's Jacob here. Welcome back to another episode of the Law of Code podcast. This is the show covering the legal side of crypto, NFTs, DAOs, and any other blockchain related innovation. Anything mentioned in this episode by Jacob Robinson or his guests is not legal advice or investment advice. All opinions are Jacob's and his guests alone. Nothing discussed today should be relied upon for legal or investment decisions. This show is solely for information and entertainment purposes only. Jacob and his guests are not your lawyers, nor are they investment advisors. Please work directly with a lawyer or investment professional. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the Law of Code podcast. My guest today is Michael Selig. He is counsel in the asset management department of the law firm Wilkie Farr and Gallagher and part of the firm's crypto practice. Michael's practice centers on the application of financial regulation to crypto and Web3 technology networks and products, including blockchains and crypto assets. Michael previously worked at the CFTC, the Commodity Futures Trading Commission, in the office of former chair Chris Giancarlo, who some may know as Crypto Dad. And Michael now works with Chris in private practice at Wilkie. Michael, welcome to the podcast and thank you for joining me today. Glad to be here. Thanks for having me. So you're interested in crypto and you've done work at the CFTC and your path has led to you being a crypto lawyer at this stage. What was your introduction to Bitcoin and your initial thoughts? Yeah, I discovered Bitcoin around 2011, oddly enough. I found an article somewhere on the internet, maybe Hacker Noon or someplace else. And you know, I was familiar with peer-to-peer software like Napster and BitTorrent. And the idea of peer-to-peer money was just fascinating to me. So I ended up going down the rabbit hole. I did about 100 hours of reading on Bitcoin and cryptography. And at the time, most of the articles you would find described it as magic internet money made by drug dealers to allow people to buy drugs on the dark net. But I remember reading some foundational pieces at the time. Of course, I read the Bitcoin white paper. I read a book on cryptography called Crypto by Stephen Levy that did a great job telling the story of cryptography in the United States, as well as books like The Sovereign Individual and Carlotta Perez's Technological Revolutions. And so I did some self-study there, but this was also right around the time when I was getting ready to take the LSAT and apply to law school. So I think I totally just shifted gears and forgot about it for a while. And it wasn't until later on when I was in law school that I returned to Bitcoin, I was actually tasked with writing a law review note. And I was racking my brain as to what to write on when I thought back to Bitcoin. And I was like, well, that was a fascinating topic, really one that that invited a lot of legal questions. So I did another kind of deep dive into the technology and the legal treatment of Bitcoin and crypto. And I really thought that this was, you know, once in a generation type technology and decided that I wanted to write my law review note on that. So The biggest challenge at the time when I was looking at that was that there really was still not much on coin or crypto in terms of the legal literature or academic literature. But there were a few papers I found. One of them was actually written by Jerry Brito, who's now at Coin Center, as well as a law review note written by Ruben Grinberg, who's now on the general counsel of NYDIG. And both did a really great job kind of explaining some of the background legal issues around crypto. And so I wrote this law review note. and, And from then on, I was really hooked. Once you dive down the rabbit hole, it is hard to get out. You don't want to, especially from a legal side. And Ruben Grinberg's paper, the titled Bitcoin, an alternative, an innovative alternative to digital currency. And so when you were going through this at the time, did you have any instinctual belief that you could build a legal career in the space? Or was it more, this is an 
interesting topic to write a legal paper on. You know, it was more the latter, but I definitely viewed this as something that was going to be transformational. I had no idea that it would become as broad as DAOs and NFTs and DeFi and everything else that that today exists. What I really viewed it as was almost a new monetary instrument and maybe something that could lead to things like CBDCs and other types of payment instruments. And actually, my law review note really focused on that payments aspect. I kind of took the view that there were all of these altcoins. And at the time, it was like Ron Paul coin and MasterCoin and nothing of the quality that you see today. But I kind of viewed all these as almost designer currencies, similar to designer drugs. And and at the time, I had a little bit of a skeptical view as to all these different altcoins, but really saw the potential in Bitcoin. And my views on a lot of that's changed, given especially the fact that there's so much potential around various types of digital assets like like Ether, some of the Layer 2 products and DeFi tokens out there. But yeah, at the time, I was a little skeptical of some of these altcoins. The industry was super nascent, but I saw some need for regulation, whether wound up in, in a you know market regulators court versus the Treasury Department. I wasn't sure at the time, but my views on that really evolved over the years. I find, especially in light of what's happened recently, it's important to speak about and understand and I think share why you work in this space. Like, Where do you see the long-term potential of crypto? And I know that's a broad question, but perhaps you could just speak on maybe one or two areas where you see this technology being an improvement on the existing system enough to warrant a, a switch. Absolutely. So the more I, d- I dug into crypto and the more it became more, you know, beyond Bitcoin, I would say, which really for me, I think I, I recognized that closer to the time of the Ethereum ICO around 2014, because up until that point, a lot of the altcoins were just forks of Bitcoin. And But as the years progressed beyond, you know, writing this law review note and starting to think about the potential, I think the Ethereum white paper kind of opened that up for me and really got me to see a world where we might have derivative contracts that operate on a blockchain or decentralized organizations that operate on a blockchain, various types of event contracts, securities that could trade on blockchains. So I thought more as like a software system for building financial markets and products. And that was really interesting to me. And I decided that I wanted to focus on financial market regulation pretty early on in law school. I wasn't sure that there was going to be this you know, Cambrian explosion of blockchain products, but that was certainly an asset class that I was going to follow and was super interested in. But it really was, I think, the Ethereum white paper that did it for me. I recognized at that point that this really could be a foundational technology for a much broader industry. I'd love to hear about the path you've taken, worked at the CFTC, now you're in private practice. Is there a moment or an experience that stands out to you as definitive that really taught you an important lesson about being a lawyer in the digital asset space? Yeah, my time at the CFTC was really foundational for me. So I was lucky to work for Christian Carlo in his office of commissioner. And this was right around the time when Mt. Gox imploded and the CFTC staff was considering whether Bitcoin is a commodity within its jurisdiction. And that's important because the CFTC has limited spot authority over any commodity in terms of manipulation and fraud. And it also has broader exclusive jurisdiction over any derivatives contracts with a commodity as the underlying asset. And, and at the time, this was right after the Dodd-Frank Act was promulgated and the CFTC was working on various regulations under the Dodd-Frank Act. 
And Gary Gensler, oddly enough, had been the CFTC chair right before Chris came in. And he had kind of pushed through all of these Dodd-Frank regulations. And Chris came in and was like, well, a lot of this was very hasty. And maybe we should rethink moving the futures trading regulatory model and placing it on top of the swaps trading model. And you know, futures are fungible, standardized exchange trade derivatives. Swaps are non-fungible, bespoke instruments. And you know, you can hedge much more tailored risks with a swap than a futures contract. And they trade in different types of markets. The swaps market structure really focused on dealer to dealer and dealer to customer market that were institutional only, whereas futures trade on large organized marketplaces continuous liquidity and you know even retail participants are able to get access. And so Chris had this idea to write a white paper that criticized the approach of Gensler in really just taking this futures trading model and putting it on top of the swaps market. And that really was a foundational experience for me. I learned a ton about market structure, about different types of financial products. And oddly enough, you know, years later, we have Gary Gensler as the SEC chair, and he's really trying to take the securities regulatory model and apply it to crypto. So I see a lot of parallels. And I think navigating that as a younger person in Chris's staff helped me tremendously in navigating the market now. And in terms of being in the room for events like that and partaking in what is an important regulatory arena, how do you think about approaching regulators now? Is there anything you could share with people that could give a bit of inside baseball, so to speak, on how to deal with regulators or to better work with them moving forward? Yeah, I think it's important to collaborate with regulators, even in an environment where the regulator is hostile to a technology or a type of market participant or a developer. It's really important because the regulators are the gatekeepers to getting your applications through. If let's say you want to have a national securities exchange or a DCM on the CTC side, you need to work with these regulators day to day. They're the ones that are supervising market participants and are the ones bringing enforcement actions. And I think early on, around 2017, 18, really during the ICO boom and the, de- the early days of DeFi, a lot of the project teams were very interested in engaging with regulators. So I was meeting with SEC staff, CFTC staff very frequently during those early years, actually probably more than even today, just given the environment. And I thought those meetings were very helpful. I think they helped educate the regulators around what the products look like, how they trade, what DeFi is. I think it helped inform and educate the staff. And we had some early meetings, particularly with the SEC as well, where I think the Clayton administration was pretty receptive. So I think that's an important piece. And even today, where there's a bit more hostility towards the technology, there's really more of a thinking that it makes sense to not go in the front door, despite Gary Gensler's invitation. And, you know, it very well may get a subpoena on the way out, right? And that's kind of the attitude. And I think that makes sense as well. So I think it's a little bit of a, an in-between, you should read the room, right? But it's important to, to engage with the regulators so that they are educated and understand the technology and can make the right decisions. And I don't think any of these battles are, are losing battles. I think through industry groups and through various means, there's ways to interact with the regulators. And you have folks like Caroline Pham at the CFTC and Hester Peirce at the SEC that are very willing to engage and maybe in the minority, but but I think it's worthwhile. I think so as well. And one thing that I've been 
thinking about a lot recently, just given the dealings that I've been having with regulators in Canada, is how their fundamental goal at the end of the day is investor protection and retail protection primarily. And so if you think of it from that perspective and recognize where you can provide them with information to assist them in doing their job and where you can protect investors and protect participants in whatever project you are running, it's a net win for everybody. And of course, overreach does occur and it's much more of a permission system maybe than it should be from the initial disclosure regime that we had after the 33 and 34 acts. But I think stepping back and thinking, how can I best protect consumers and conveying that and working with regulators to do that is a win for everybody. Yeah, I totally agree. So in terms of the CFTC's jurisdiction when it comes to crypto, are there any major areas you think projects should keep an eye on or where you've particularly advised projects when it comes to working with the CFTC in the crypto space? Yeah, the CFTC today has fairly limited regulatory authority over crypto. They have authority over spot markets with respect to anti-manipulation, anti-fraud. They have authority over derivatives markets. So, you know, broadly speaking, every type of asset fits within the definition of a commodity to the extent it's fungible, and you can have a futures contract that trades with that commodity as the underlying asset. Securities are also commodities. They're just commodities that the SEC regulates as opposed to the CFTC. And so because digital assets are a type of commodity, the CFTC has regulatory authority over the spot markets in which those assets trade solely with respect to anti-fraud and anti-manipulation. With respect to derivatives markets, where a commodity such as a digital asset is the underlying asset that the contract is based on, the CFTC has exclusive jurisdiction over that. So the CFTC regulates designated contract markets, as well as derivatives clearing organizations and a number of intermediaries that play in the derivative space. It doesn't regulate or mandate registration, for example, of an investment advisor with respect to, to crypto spot, but it does with respect to crypto derivatives. And when you were there, what did your role look like? Yeah, so I was in Chris's office at the time he was a commissioner. And so the role was a little bit different than the staff that is working in the various divisions within the agency. The commissioners review things a bit more holistically. So they're involved with discussions with industry. They're reviewing all the proposed rules, final rules, and kind of helping guide those conversations. They're also reviewing all the comment letters that come in to help inform their policies. And they're involved in the open meetings where they vote on each of the rules. They're also involved in enforcement. So a very small portion during those days was dedicated to crypto because there were no crypto futures contracts, very few swaps with the crypto as the underlying asset. And so the primary exercise with respect to Bitcoin was figuring out, is this a commodity? And all of the commissioners kind of seemed to agree that it was. And then there were open meetings with respect to, okay, it's a commodity. Is it something that we're going to be okay with futures trading on? And that became a large debate that they kind of finally concluded in 2017 after I'd left the agency with Chris being the chair at the time, he greenlit Bitcoin futures. And so that was the 
really the agency's first concrete entry into crypto. But up until that point, there had been several enforcement actions related to, to fraud and manipulation. And it's also important to note that anytime you have margin financing or leverage involved with trading crypto assets, the CFTC also has authority over that as if it were a futures contract. And so early days, all of the big exchanges wanted to offer margin trading where you could go trade all these different altcoins at you know, 10x, 100x leverage. Bitfinex had a program where there was kind of peer-to-peer margining similar to what FTX had. And that was offered within the United States. And so the CFTC brought enforcement action because Bitfinex was actually required to be registered as a futures commission merchant, which is basically a broker to offer that mar- that margin or leverage. And these types of products also have to trade on a futures exchange, a DCM. Familiar. And I think everyone is with the Howey test for an investment contract. But what do the discussions look like when you're determining that something like Bitcoin, for example, is a commodity? Yeah, the key issues there, right? So the first digital assets r- really that I'm aware of that the kind of trade in markets, organized markets are environmental commodities. So you have things like renewable energy credits, carbon credits, and, and all that sort of stuff. So the CFTC had already said that these are commodities, despite the fact that they're digital. And so as long as you can deliver that commodity to somebody else, whether it's through a database or through a physical delivery, and that person can then consume the commodity and use it in commerce, like with a renewable energy credit, you can retire the credit with a digital asset, you can spend it and use it as money, you can use it to pay gas, you can do all sorts of things with digital assets. And so as long as you satisfy those basic criteria, the product's probably going to be a commodity and as long as it's fungible. It was, I think, more of a public policy question as to whether the agency really enters that realm and starts regulating these markets. It wasn't too common at the time. I think I saw a, an enforcement action related to spot natural gas at the time, and it wasn't that common, right? The CFTC typically didn't bring fraud and manipulation cases in spot markets except for like Forex and for, foreign exchange. It's done it in the past. It just wasn't as common. But once it entered the crypto realm, it started to bring these at a pretty regular clip. So there were a number of just pure fraud market manipulation type cases in spot markets. And then you had cases like the Bitfinex case I mentioned. And there was another against Terra Exchange. I think that was the first action the CFTC brought. And that one actually involved a swap. And so it was, you know, actual registered platform for wash trading. But the CFTC started bringing a significant amount of these enforcement actions and really was a trailblazer in the space way before the SEC really entered it. There were a handful of enforcement actions, but really with the Dow report in 2017 is when the SEC entered the fray. Thank you for that background. And that's great to know. And so in terms of the test and just I mentioned Howie earlier and to talk a bit about that, I like the post you said where the SEC is inadvertently pushing token projects towards sufficient decent or decentralization generally, given you know what they said in library, where basically in dicta they said if you even don't say anything but you hold back a set of tokens and people know you've held them back, that's enough to have that potential for the price appreciation based on your efforts because you're incentivized to do that. And then you also mentioned how. Um, the library's decision isn't super significant because crypto projects were already aware of this and moved away from relying on the utility token model to defeat Howie. But then you noted two things, which the first was withholding tokens in treasury and using them to pay for goods and services 
is a really bad fact. And the judge reasoned that this signals to investors that library would engage in efforts to drive value to LBC holders. And that sort of touches on what I mentioned as well. I'd love to hear your thoughts on why utility doesn't cure speculative value and if there's ever a situation where it does. Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, it's helpful to start with Howie. I think everybody has a different view on Howie these days. My view on Howie, pretty simple. It's a prophylactic catch-all story of securities within the definition of a security. But the idea is really that there's a scheme or a contract or transaction, and the token can be part of that scheme, right? So you can have an investment of money in a common enterprise, reasonable expectation of profits based on the efforts of others, and there's a token involved. The scheme itself, the contract, the transaction, it's really a legal wrapper that gets applied after the fact by a court. And I think when you have a token involved, the token is kind of an easy representation of that scheme. It's something that kind of gets encased within this legal wrapper. And so when a project offers a token to pre-sale investors or public investors, there are a bunch of expectations and understandings that get packaged into a general scheme. There's a token that gets delivered to the investor and the investor might go and sell that token. And I think the biggest question today, and there's a lot of debate, you know, I think Lewis Cohen wrote a great paper kind of explaining his views on Howie, but I do take issue with this idea that the token does not sit within that legal wrapper, right? So I think when the token gets transferred in secondary markets, it can still continue to transfer with a legal wrapper around it. And that legal wrapper might be undermined over time. And I think this is what the Hinman speech was really getting at. So when Bill Hinman, the former director of Corp Fin within the SEC, said that a token can kind of transform from a security into a non-security over time, I think what he really meant there is that there's this legal wrapper encasing the token. When it's sold, it, it may have a centralized team around it, a project. You might be looking to those individuals for profits. But over time, that team might decentralize. There, there may be less value proposition associated with that team. The value proposition for Ethereum, for example, is totally decentralized. There's layer two applications built on top. There's DeFi protocols. There's NFTs, millions of tokens, millions of unique wallet addresses. The value is really decentralized across that network. Um, and so the legal wrapper just totally falls apart. But that doesn't mean that those initial transactions weren't securities transactions. And so I think cases like Library and others, Kick, Telegram, they all really relate to this early stage in time. They relate to Section 5 violations with respect to the original sale of those tokens. And of course, there's a legal wrapper around them. For a long time, there was this idea that you could have a token that has a you know, great utility, but still lots of speculative value. And the utility really wasn't related to the price. And everyone was like, steady lads, deploying utility, like, let's get our tokens out there. But that really doesn't solve the general investment issue, the speculation issue. Even if you're expecting some sort of utility, you're looking to some issuer, some project for profits, as opposed to a more decentralized community, not looking to anyone. With a lot of collectibles and other goods that, that trade, you're not looking to some centralized person for profits. Like if you're looking to the wheat markets, because you've got wheat, that's a decentralized market. And so I think the idea that Hinman really was getting at why cases like Library and Telegram are 
not really problematic in my view for the large majority of tokens floating around, or at least the most popular tokens floating around, is that these tokens are no longer within any sort of investment contract legal wrapper. And so they shouldn't be treated as securities because the value proposition associated with with those tokens is too decentralized to say that there's some defined other that you're looking to for profits. And that's why you're seeing instead of you know, deploying utility, you're seeing deploying decentralization, ushering a DAO, doing things like that. And on balance, the real promise of crypto is decentralization. And so ironically, the SECs pushed a lot of the industry towards decentralization, as opposed to shutting it down. I think there are a lot of flourishing projects that have less centralized points of failure than some of the projects that the SEC did target. And the SEC also targeted a lot of scams like BitConnect, Forsage. So on balance, I think the precedent out there doesn't undermine the decentralization thesis. A lot of the projects like Library that courts have deemed to be securities at the time they sold the tokens, that's less of a question. The, The real question is, are they decentralized today? Are these still trading as securities in secondary markets? And for a lot of these projects, they may have started out more centralized, but today that's not the case. I think if you just take that 10,000 foot view of whether a token is a security or not, just asking yourself, why are people buying this? And if they're buying it because they want or believe there could be some price appreciation, all of a sudden you're looking at, okay, well, who is driving this and who do the people believe is driving this? And that's where cases like Ripple are really important to see what is sufficient in terms of what the other party is doing to move that scheme or just move the price of the token forward. So I think it's an interesting one, especially when you look at something like Bitcoin, right? And you mentioned how some of the tokens have gone past this because in my opinion, they've you're not looking at an identifiable party. There isn't that one group that you're really counting on to drive the price up. But are there other factors that you look at and see that make a commodity like Bitcoin, I'm going to call it a commodity, not a security? I really do believe that the fourth prong of Howie is the most important. The common enterprise prong is important as well, right? Is there some sort of direct relationship between the holder of this token and the issuer or some other party? Is there capital that's been placed with this party that they're pooling? All of that's important, but I think it comes down to decentralization ultimately. Is there an identifiable other that you're looking to? I think it's helpful to have utility. That's another factor under Howie, and you know, in, in terms of expectation of profits and the foreman case is great, but it really does not appear to be the case that the SEC is looking at in its enforcement actions. And, you know, the key cases that I think the SEC is focused on are obviously Howie, but also Gary Plastic. And in the case of many of these arrangements, they do look at the Reeves test to determine whether they're notes. But putting all of that aside, I think it's primarily a question of, is there sufficient decentralization such that this legal wrapper is no longer running the token? And is there a scheme going on the back end? And yeah, there's, it's a complicated one, but I think it's something that will be more clear as more cases go to court and eventually, well, it's funny because protocols that would win will never have 
I don't think a case brought against them. Like who would you bring a case against if you were going after Bitcoin? I, right. And so that's an interesting one, but I'd love to get your thoughts on the evolution of crypto regulatory market structure since you began writing about crypto really to go all the way back to law school. Like how have you seen that develop and what does the trend in development mean to the future of digital assets? Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, I think a lot of the market structure started to come into place when you had all of these sorts of tokens floating around. And in the United States, what we got was really a state money transmitter licensing agency regime where these agencies looked at whether there was a substitute for currency, some sort of monetary value. If so, they essentially treated the exchange or the custodian or the broker like Western Union or MoneyGram. They said, you have to register with FinCEN as a money services business. You had to get state money transmitter licenses. In New York, we got the New York Bit license. So it was really this licensing regime that was pretty much focused on, at the federal level, anti-money laundering, state level, consumer protection, but generally speaking, just about transmission of funds. And so we started to see some separate liquidity pools in the United States and offshore where the market's totally decoupled, but there wasn't a whole lot of regulation across the board. So you still had market manipulation and wash trading and other abusive practices throughout, but I think it, it became even worse so offshore because you had the SEC policing certain tokens being securities. So there was a little bit of a basically a listing process on all the exchanges as to whether it's a security or non-security. And then you had this kind of overlay of money transmitter licensing and money services business regulation. But starting off with Ethereum, you know, you had these ICO tokens floating around. The SEC kind of entered the fray with the Dow report. You had less, less restriction offshore. So lots of token issuers were just issuing tokens with no sort of real documentation. In the United States, you got the SAFT and a lot of documentation around, you know, when you would receive your tokens in the future. If you're purchasing on a pre-sale, there was a public sale typically. So there was a little bit more of a defined structure around the types of offerings that you would get. But of course, the SEC with Telegram and cases following that took the view that these SAFT agreements really were securities themselves, but also the tokens delivered under those were within that kind of legal wrapper of the investment contract because the sorts of expectations and understandings really traveled with those tokens when they're sold. And so the SAFT kind of died and the structure, again, went really offshore where you had a lot of these offerers selling tokens offshore in gas offerings, offerings to offshore pers offshore transactions to non-US persons. And then you got a few attempts at these Reg A offerings like Blockstack and YouNow. But generally, the market kind of really fragmented around this time. And I think the offshore markets had a ton of margin trading. Like we mentioned the Bitfinex case earlier, that was kind of killed in the United States for the most part, but all the exchanges offshore like BitMEX and Binance, you can get a ton of leverage. And that was a total different dynamic in the United States where that was much more restricted. So I think there's been a fragmentation of market structure. You've got a lot more security type tokens trading offshore, whereas in the United States, the model is more of Today, you do a safe plus a token warrant, and there's an option to purchase the tokens once the network launches. And then the majority of these tokens are governance tokens, and they get kind of distributed to the community. What we end up with is really this regulatory market structure that looks a lot like what regulates Western Union and MoneyGram applied to crypto exchanges. 
and you've got a securities overlay that kind of weeds out certain tokens. So it's pretty interesting. I think also you have all sorts of market participants that mirror those in equities markets and commodity markets. And DeFi is a separate topic. And I think DeFi is very different from anything out there. Like there's a lot of same risk, same regulation, but the risks are totally different there. I think two words to describe the approach so far is confusing and political. And even the whole idea of the money transmitter license being sufficient to me doesn't really feel like the right approach, especially given that it was created money moving from one spot to another and not actually being held by Western Union for that significant a period of a time, unlike what we see with where people park their crypto on the exchange and leave it there sometimes for years, despite the, the calls of many crypto lawyers, not your keys, not your coin. All right, so let's talk a bit about 2023. And as we enter the early part of the year, we are beginning to see more enforcement actions, but we're also sort of seeing the stage being set for potential regulation. You know, we're not really sure what will happen, but I think we can all agree that enforcement is likely, as given in your recent Coindesk article, that the SEC has doubled the size of its crypto asset enforcement team and will likely continue to regulate by enforcement in 2023. When you think of the SEC and how 2023 will play out, are there any things that you are expecting to see over the coming year? Yeah, so the SEC and the CFTC both have the authority to regulate through rulemaking and through enforcement. And I think this year we're really going to see a lot of enforcement in this space. The SEC under the current chair, Greg Ensler, has been of the view that the vast majority of crypto assets are securities. And so the vast majority of issuers and intermediaries playing the space need to register with the SEC. But they're not going to write any new rules or provide exemptive relief to make any of this work. And so Gensler is really just saying everybody should issue their tokens as securities, plot securities laws and regulations, register special purpose broker dealers, national securities exchange, and then when that all of that's said and done, none of it really work, right? Because the industry needs new rules and exemptive relief to, to put all these pieces together. Otherwise, we're just going to have the equity market structure and crypto assets will just be equities on a blockchain. All of the innovative and decentralized applications for use of crypto are just not going to work under that structure. You know, under a traditional securities market structure, securities transactions are settled through clearing agencies, depositories, clearing banks, transfer agents. And none of this is really needed or works for on-chain settlement of crypto transactions. So I think what we're going to see is a bit of a battle between the builders and the regulators, decentralization and regulation. We will see projects make efforts to decentralize and distribute control over the governance of these protocols across a broad, dispersed population in an effort to make the argument that the assets associated with these protocols and technologies are not the same type of investment product that the SEC typically regulates and really that fit within the construct of an investment contract. And on the CFTC side, the CFTC only has anti-fraud and manipulation authority over crypto spot markets today. And so enforcement is really the primary tool it has, aside from providing some sort of rules within the crypto derivatives market. Margin is a little bit of a, an area where the CFTC could offer a bit more guidance and rulemaking, but the primary tool it has is to bring enforcement actions. And it likely will, will similar to the SEC, bring enforcement actions that 
test the boundaries of its authority in the decentralization arena. And, and the most recent of these actions is the one it brought just a week or so ago against Avi Eisenberg related to mango markets. And of course, the, the Uki Dow case has been ongoing for some time now, but the CFTC recently filed for a default judgment in that case. And just to give some background on the Eisenberg case, for those who might not be familiar, he was charged with commodities fraud and market manipulation by U.S. prosecutors from the Southern District of New York last month. He was arrested in Puerto Rico on December 26th. And so the CFTC is going after civil monetary penalties and related relief, which could include trading bans, restitution, disgorgement, and rescission, as well as pre- and post-judgment interest according to a complaint that was filed a couple days ago. So do you want to just give a bit of background on, on what he did there? The Eisenberg case is really a fairly straightforward market manipulation case, but in a crypto world context. And the case relates to Oracle manipulation. So Eisenberg was able to manipulate the pricing oracles for the Mango crypto asset token. And by manipulating the pricing oracles for spot pricing of Mango token, he was then able to manipulate his swap position. So he took out both sides of a swap transaction on the, they call them perpetual futures, but the CFTC is alleging that these are swaps, took out a swap position on both sides. So he was long and short Mango on the Mango decentralized exchange protocol. And then he also had Mango in the spot market that he traded up through wash trading to manipulate the price through the Oracle. And so the Oracle tracks the price of Mango on various exchanges. Eisenberg was able to bid up the price by wash trading on these various exchanges. That moved the price of his swap position. And so he used his long swap position to pull assets off the Mango protocol because the Mango protocol was also a lending protocol. And so he was able to borrow assets off the protocol using his swap position as collateral. And of course, his other swap position, the short position went to nothing. And the long position was doing well while he was manipulating the price. But the minute he stopped manipulating the price, of course, his position went to nothing. But he had already pulled these assets off the exchange. And this really highlights the issue of combining a decentralized exchange protocol with an, or with a lending protocol. But the CFTC is alleging that Eisenberg engaged in market manipulation. And this happens all the time in other markets. You could have wheat markets where the price is bid up in the spot market to, to influence the swap position. So it's a pretty typical scheme that you'll see and that the CFTC has brought many actions involving in, in you know, energy markets and ag commodity markets and other markets. But this is unique in that it's the first time the CFTC has brought one of these cases involving decentralized exchanges for sure, but also crypto. Yeah. And what's especially interesting too, is when you think of something like wheat, it's well established that it is a commodity, but here the CFTC would have to prove that the mango token was either a security or a commodity, right? To bring charges against him. Yeah. And there, there's an interesting wrinkle here that actually Collins Belton pointed out on Twitter. So the mango token is not expressly alleged to be a commodity in the complaint, but the fact that the CFTC is calling Mango USDC perps swaps leads one to believe that they've kind of left this out of the complaint, but Mango USDC otherwise should be a security-based swap, which is also a security that the SEC would regulate. So the fact that they're treating it as a swap is interesting. There is a concept of a mixed swap, and a mixed swap is 
a swap that involves both commodities and securities. And so it's both commodity swap and a security-based swap. But typically, there's more of a shared jurisdiction there. And so there would be in the complaint, this allegation that it's a mixed swap, that the SEC also has some jurisdiction. You might see a parallel SEC case. That hasn't happened here yet, but you know, by the time this podcast goes live, for all we know, you know, the SEC will have brought a case. So there's this lingering question of whether the positions were just plain vanilla swaps or also security-based swaps. And what Colin said, just to repurpose the tweet, he said, they didn't state mango is a commodity. In fact, they seem to go out of their way to avoid classifying it and instead refer to it as the native token of mango. When they list certain assets as commodities, they only specify BTC, ETH, and USDC or USDT. And, you know, argument that they used the protocol as designed and it was just a highly profitable trading strategy. I think it's funny to it's ironic, you know, I call this podcast law of code because the rules surrounding things like code. And if you make the argument that, well, hey, the door was open so I could go in their house and steal everything that was there. It's so analogous to saying that I just did what the code allowed me to do. That doesn't mean what you did wasn't theft or market manipulation. Yeah, that's right. And there's this code is law meme that Harvard professor Larry Lessig invented it in a book called Code that he wrote in the 90s. And the idea he was trying to convey, which has kind of been taken out of context, especially in, in regards to this case, is that code can define what users of software can and cannot do within an application in a way that norms and rules in the physical world can't. And here, if the Mango smart contract says that a user wants to borrow crypto from the protocol, has to post a certain amount of collateral based on the value of that Oracle, a value of the collateral is determined by the Oracle. The code dictates that the user has satisfy this condition and specifies which oracle will be used to determine the value. But the idea isn't that, you know, as long as the code allows you to do something, then it's legal to do it. It doesn't override the Commodity Exchange Act. Code's just kind of the architecture of the space. And, you know, the code doesn't even need to be digital. The climate of an area can dictate how wheat will grow in that area. And if there's a drought, then there's less wheat. And that might make it possible to corner the market for wheat and manipulate wheat futures. But that doesn't make it legal to do that. That's a great analogy. And thank you for that. One, one thing you mentioned at the end of your first article on Coindesk was how neither agency is poised to issue new crypto rules, referring to the SEC and the CFTC. Why do you think that? And when do you think we will see new crypto rules, if any, in the US? Until we see a comprehensive legislative package that prompts the SEC and CFTC to go out and issue rules in this area, I wouldn't expect the agencies to go and do it without that motivation. So we had Dodd-Frank in 2010, the CFTC and SEC had their marching orders. Actually, Gary Gensler was the chair of the CFTC at the time, and they went out and promulgated a bunch of rules to implement Dodd-Frank. Here, I think we will eventually see the same thing, but currently, the SEC has authority under the view that crypto assets are securities. The current chair believes that the vast majority are securities. And so they have the authority to regulate these products under their existing regulatory perimeter. But of course, as I pointed out earlier, that doesn't really work. And so to the extent the policy shifts and the SEC decides, okay, let's work with the industry and build a regulatory framework where crypto assets can thrive which I think is absolutely possible. There's exemptive relief and things that, that can be done to make that work. I mean, we have 
Hester Purse's safe harbor proposal, a number of rules that, that she's proposed to, to issue, the SEC could take up just as a starting point. But the SEC is not likely to do that under this administration. And I think similarly on the CFTC side, there's not a whole lot that they really can do under their existing authority. There's the world of margin trading, which the retail commodity regulations, which the CFTC issued guidance with respect to actual delivery of retail commodity transactions. So there's an exemption from treatment of retail commodity transactions, which are just leveraged margin financed commodity transactions to retail. There's an exemption from CFTC regulation of those transactions requiring that these transactions occur on a CFTC regulated exchange with a CFTC regulated broker for transactions that settle within 28 days and there's actual delivery within that period. So the CFTC provided a little bit of guidance there, but there there could be more. I mean, the industry didn't love that guidance. It didn't really allow for these products to occur off of regulated platforms. You don't see anybody offering these products really, you know, aside from CFTC regulated platforms. FTX was one of them, but there's very little margin trading offered in the United States in a regulated context. And the CFTC could potentially offer some rulemaking there, make it a little bit easier for these products to trade. Of course, there was the FTX proposal for for direct market access for retail to its exchange. A lot of that kind of likely is dead. You know, the the proposal's been withdrawn. But regardless of that, this the CFTC doesn't have a whole lot to do in this space aside from bring enforcement actions. And just on on the topic of DAOs, and you mentioned Uki DAO, we talked a bit about Mango earlier. This was the first year, I guess 2022 was the year that there was a first the first enforcement action brought by the CFTC against a DAO. And you mentioned in the article it may not be long before the SEC follows suit. Just I'd love to hear your thoughts on DAO member liability, particularly when it comes to just voting on governance proposals or managing a multi-sig. I'd love to hear how you would think about being involved in the DAO when it comes to liability for maybe what you could be liable for and what you should be liable for, depending on your participation and how the DAO is structured? It's a tricky question, and it does depend to some extent. There are various types of DAOs, and Miles Jennings actually wrote a great piece on on the various types of DAOs and legal wrapper structures. Rodrigo Acera at Paradigm wrote a, another piece that, that similarly kind of breaks down the different types of DAOs. And it really does depend on the type of legal wrapper, if any, that the DAO has as a starting point. But there's not a great legal wrapper structure, period, it, it offered anywhere. The Cayman structure is really the typical structure, which we can talk about, but there is not a great legal wrapper available today. And so it's a little bit of picking the best of the worst options. That might change. Hopefully we get some action at the state level. Wyoming has a Dow C law. In in many people's views, that needs to evolve a little bit to, to be a bit more practical for a Dow. But the way that most of these Dows are set up, they're either an unincorporated association with no legal wrapper whatsoever, or they establish some form of legal wrapper. And the legal wrapper might wrap the entire Dow. So you might have a, let's just use an LLC as the most basic example. So if you're treating everything as an LLC, it's very restrictive, but maybe you go with DAO LLC or typical Delaware LLC, and that wrapper wraps the entire DAO because your token, your interest in the DAO is an LLC interest. And so everybody's got limited liability. It's very similar to just holding any sort of membership interest in a in an LLC. But if you go a step further and set up a Cayman Foundation, the Cayman Foundation sits as a legal wrapper and much of the activities of the DAO have to be 
ratified by the board of directors of this ownerless Cayman Foundation, such that many of these activities, treasury spending, things like that all flow through. So in, in the LLC example, very clear that there's just a typical C, there's limited liability, no concern there. Unincorporated association, no legal wrapper, the complete opposite. There's a very good likelihood that everybody could be held liable, whether the agency, if we're talking CFTC, SEC, would pursue a judgment against individuals. They haven't done so in the Uki case. They're pursuing the judgment against the Dow Treasury. So that's an open question as a policy matter, whether they would do that. I would think not, but there's this liability question and what constitutes being a member of that is an open question as well, whether it's just voting like the CFTC said, or just being a member, holding a token, that all depends and how you kind of exit there. You know, there's unincorporated association laws that very state to state. Generally, you can exit one of these by kind of burning your token potentially, or just getting rid of your token and letting everyone know you're no longer part of it. So there's some questions there, but you're always liable potentially for the things that happen before you leave. But if you have a Cayman legal wrapper structure, there's a little bit of a middle ground because a lot of the actions of the DAO, so if the DAO votes to, to do X and the board has to ratify X, the DAO doesn't have the full power to just go out and do X. It, it flows up through that board. And so there's this theory that the DAO legal wrapper would be liable if the DAO legal wrapper's board votes to do X and X violates the law, as opposed to the individual members. There, there's always, of course, this argument that there should be a, you know, aiding and abetting liability associated with the DAO. I mean, it, you can't really get rid of this unincorporated association in the world of the Cayman Foundation. And that's the problem because it's not totally wrapped in. It's an ownerless foundation. So the interests don't equal one-to-one the same way they do with membership shares on, under an LLC. And I think the you know the answer it depends is really important, especially when you think about the functions that the DAO could be doing. Uki DAO is a good example of where B0X, before it transferred control of the platform, they were they had marketed and solicited users for a blockchain-based trading platform, which the CFTC claimed was illegally operated as an unregistered future commission merchant. And so if the DAO you're participating in is, is conducting activity that might be registrable, might be illegal, frankly, then your liability is a lot different than if the DAO is just, say, raising funds to buy a constitution. Right. There, there's certain activities and services and products that, that you have to be registered with an agency to offer and provide. And that's a great example. Futures Commission Merchant Registration. You can't offer, for example, as in the case of UkiDAO, retail commodity transactions unless you're registered as a Futures Commission Merchant with the CFTC. And those transactions have to trade on a, a, a DCM, a designated contract market. So there are all of these market regulator requirements that you can't get around by having a DAO and decentralizing. I think that was really the CFTC's reason for bringing the Uki DAO case. The founders of the BZX protocol openly said they were attempting to evade regulation by creating a DAO and transferring control over the protocol to the DAO. The CFTC is not going to tacitly approve that action. They brought the enforcement action to tell the market that 
creating a DAO and having decentralization theater around the DAO does not absolve you from the requirement to register with the CFTC. And in this case, I believe they reached a settlement with the co-founders of B0X. So it's if you're the founder and then you create this thing and then you, yeah, so it's they filed and settled charges against B0X LLC and required a $250,000 monetary penalty and to cease and desist from further violations. So those are the separate charges you were referring to. And it's just a good example of even if you have something and then create a DAO, that doesn't absolve you, as you mentioned, from liability. So Mike, we've talked a lot about enforcement, and I think it's pretty obvious the that regulating by enforcement is not the way to go. Based on the collapses we've seen and how these regulators can act like they're doing their job, but then all of a sudden when people are losing money by the hundreds of millions and billions in some cases, and then you come in after the fact to to bring a suit against a certain hall or something, it's just, it doesn't achieve any of the objectives you're hoping to achieve and that you're really mandated to achieve. So given given that sentiment and given I'm an optimist and I think you're an optimist as well. So in the best case scenario, is it possible to see regulation period, like regulation to offer guidance? And if so, what would that look like? Yeah. So I mentioned the SEC and CFTC have these two tools. They can bring enforcement actions and they can issue rules and the rules go through a process known as notice and comment. And so you propose the rules, allow industry to comment and review those rules, provide feedback on the rules, and then you finalize the rules and their regulations that the, the industry abides by. The CFTC and SEC both have some authority over the this asset class. The SEC, under the current chair, Gary Gensler, takes the view that the vast majority of crypto assets are securities. So there, there's this whole design space to issue rules, provide exemptive relief, and regulate the industry, but the agency is not choosing to, to entertain that that version of reality and instead will go about bringing these enforcement actions. But I'm actually working on a Coindesk article right now that's kind of the flip side of what's actually happening right now. But there's this existing authority that both agencies have that they can use to to work with industry to develop a sensible regulatory framework for the products. And of course, there's no comprehensive spot jurisdiction for the CFTC over crypto assets today. So they would need legislative authority to expand their jurisdiction there. But there's more they can do in the world of margin trading, and I can get to that. And the SEC, to the extent they're taking the view that certain crypto assets are crypto asset securities, as the chair calls them, there's a bit they can do to make the market structure work for these products. And so an easy one, updating the framework that the FinHub put out in 2019 and providing more clarity to the industry as to what is a crypto asset security and what is not, because we're now seeing all sorts of new products that we didn't have when the FinHub initially put out that guidance. So governance tokens is a good one. We're talking about things like Mango. To the extent the SEC is taking the view that these governance tokens are part of an investment contract or Potentially, they could take the view that they're a different type of security. Frankly, whatever they're thinking there, it would be helpful to understand that. It would also be helpful to understand their views on NFTs and and other products. And this is more just working with industry and providing some helpful guidance because, you know, I mentioned there's a little bit of this rug pull going on where Gary Gensler invites you to come in, but we'll give you a subpoena on the way out. And providing some guidance where you feel safe reading that guidance and trying to follow the path 
that's going to be helpful for the industry. Of course, everybody can call up a lawyer and work with a lawyer to figure that out. But I think this is an important first step because companies are frankly afraid to go into the SEC and talk to them. So giving some guidance there. There's also Hester Peirce had proposed this safe harbor years ago, and then she reproposed it. And it's actually rulemaking. She proposes several rules that would provide a safe harbor for crypto projects to issue tokens without having to comply with the full panoply of securities laws or register the securities. And then once three years is up, the issuer can either go work with a law firm and take the view that it is sufficiently decentralized or that the network's functional or the token is a security and comply with the securities laws. But that provides a little bit of a runway for these projects to get off the ground and develop with a little bit more regulatory certainty. Of course, we have exemptions from registration like Reg D, Reg S, Reg A. There are various regulations that that projects could utilize to issue privately placed securities or issue tokens outside the United States. But these Structures don't work very well for crypto assets. There's not guidance there. One easy example is that a number of the regulations refer to equity and debt. And, you know, everything that's not equity is debt, but it's not clear what an investment contract is. So we've seen, for example, with Blockstacks Reg A, the issuers have basically taken the view that the investment contracts are equity for purposes of certain of the filing requirements. And so it's Investment contracts are just not really incorporated into these frameworks in a meaningful way. And so providing more guidance, even if it's not on just crypto, but on investment contracts and how they fit, because the investment contract definition really is an after the fact post hoc regulatory analysis that gets applied to a scheme or a contract or a transaction that doesn't easily fit within any of the other buckets of securities. And so the SEC or a private litigant will make the case that it's it should be regulated similarly for prophylactic reasons to other securities, but this is all after the fact. And so having more structure around what investment contracts are, how they fit within the securities laws, that's important. That's helpful for market participants. The SEC has put out a special purpose broker-dealer statement and request for comment, and that's in effect for another handful of years. It has a five-year life, and I think they issued it in 2020. The special purpose broker-dealer framework allows for broker-dealers to custody crypto assets and trade crypto assets, but the framework doesn't allow them to trade in non-security crypto assets or other types of securities. And there's not really a great framework for these special purpose broker-dealers to come into compliance with existing regulations. There's very few of these that have actually gotten off the ground. And it's very limiting to not be able to trade other types of securities or offer Bitcoin and Ether products that are clearly non-securities. And so providing more guidance in this area, potentially codifying some of this in actual rulemaking would be helpful to the industry. And then of course, the crown jewel really is the National Securities Exchange. There is not any way for a, a crypto exchange today to register as a national securities exchange and offer crypto assets in compliance with all of the applicable laws and regulations. National securities exchanges need to be transacting in registered securities. Crypto assets are not registered securities. And so they, they might be able to cure this with some sort of exemptive relief. But this would assume you know that all the issuers that have issued tokens 
either go and register or there's relief for those tokens, likelihood under this SEC would be that they would use that as a tool to get the issuers to go register their securities. But there needs to be some framework for these crypto assets to trade on national securities exchanges as non-registered securities to the extent they're not registered. That's a big issue. Yeah, there, there really does. And I think the best move forward, in my opinion, relates to disclosure. That's where the Securities Act came from. It was just to put the investors on a level playing field, reduce information asymmetry. And it's very possible to do that in crypto. You have the codes on chain, a lot of the other related transactions are on chain. You just need a method to make that legible and accessible to the average investor in a way that they can go in and they can see, okay, oh, all the insiders or all the related parties to this project are selling all their tokens. Okay, well, that's a bit of a red flag, right? And I think having things like that will be a net positive for the industry as a whole, because it'll weed out the people who are more likely to want that information asymmetry and want to do things in private that might not be so good if they're disclosed to everyone. And then if you increase the transparency in that regard, you're hitting the target that the SEC and the other regulators want, which is just to reduce the likelihood of scams to protect investors while facilitating capital markets at the same time, rather than this sort of regulation by enforcement approach. So I hope we start to see a viable path to disclosure, and maybe that has to be started by the industry. But I think that's probably our best bet forward because it's just so difficult to fit what we have now into the existing laws when it comes to crypto. Yeah, I think that's right. I think that's why the the safe harbor approach is a great one because you get a minimum amount of disclosure as needed during that initial period when there are those information asymmetries. And then the project either decentralizes such that there's not any information asymmetries or very little, if any, or it's a functional product. And if you don't get there, you should be subject to the securities laws. But There's no reason the SEC can't act to promulgate rules similar to those that Commissioner Peirce has proposed. Yeah, my one beef with, well, two-part thing with the safe harbor rule is you'd have to have some measure for sufficient decentralization to reach after that three period. Like if you're issuing shares of a company and then all of a sudden they're widely distributed, but it's still shares in a company that doesn't really seem sufficiently decentralized to me. And then the second would just be the mitigating the likelihood that everyone who wants to issue tokens or securities would just jump into this safe harbor thing, try to figure it out in three years. And then after that, worry about it after 36 months, but then a lot of damage could be done. Absolutely. Totally agree. I distinguish these assets as network assets, as opposed to a lot of the products out there that you would view as a typical security. I think a network asset requires a network, requires some sort of decentralization, distributed ownership, of course, but also technological decentralization. So I think there's many ways that we can measure decentralization. But if there's no network, if there's no, even if it's an organization, if we're talking kind of a DAO type network or a, in in the case of some of these NFT projects, a brand that's really distributed, everybody plays a role in, in developing if you don't have that, I don't think that there should be an exemption or any sort of safe harbor. But if you don't get there within the three-year period, you're pulled into the securities law framework. So I think it provides a path for these projects to get off the ground, which is important. Yeah, no, and it's a good point. And even just in your answer there, 
you know, after 36 months, if you've raised funds, it's a lot easier to come into compliance with securities rules because now you have the funds to do so. It's so expensive to go through that process. And then what you'll initially have to do if there's no safe harbor is you'd have to convince all these investors to give you funds, which a good chunk of it would be used just to register the token, not to build the product or do anything in that regard. That's right. And the reality is that all the projects today are raising on a safe plus a token warrant. And so they're complying with the securities laws to the extent they're issuing either of those instruments. It's the question of whether the token after the period of fundraising is a security. And I, I think that's really the barrier. There's no ICOs happening by and large in the United States anymore. That's all cleared out. And the SEC was right to bring a lot of these early enforcement actions because there were so many scams and fundraising attempts through tokens. But today, a lot of the projects that exist that are still standing or that are launching are really intending to build decentralized infrastructure, layer one networks, layer twos, DeFi protocols. There are many of these NFT projects that have gone CCO or are building global brand. The Focus is very different from the early 2017 vintage ICOs. And I think the, the SEC, CFTC should recognize that and provide a pathway for the legitimate projects to, to grow. I think so too. And I think there's a lot to be excited about going forward. It'll definitely be an interesting year, just given where we are in the bear market cycle and where interest rates are at and just the overall sentiment. So I think it could be an uphill battle in some respects, but it's one worth fighting. And thank you for the work you do, the great articles on Coindesk. I'm looking forward to part two. If this episode is released by the time part two is out, we'll link that in the show notes as well. But yeah, Mike, so if people want to get in touch with you, they can reach out to you on Twitter. Absolutely. I'm Mike Seelig ESQ on Twitter. Perfect. Okay, Mike, we'll link that in the show notes as well. Thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me today, talk CFTC, SEC, and all the crypto enforcement related topics. Thanks for having me.